Will you join me with a word of prayer? Father God, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to hear your word and to allow the Holy Spirit to minister the word to our hearts and to our lives, to feed us, to nourish us. We thank you for the time now that we have had to express our love to you and to bring you worship because that's what you've made us for, for eternity, um, to bring you praise and worship. Father, we thank you for the elements that we see set before us to remind us that the table is set for the family of faith, inviting us to come to be reminded of the grace that we have received so generously. Now we invite you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. We invite you to breathe fresh life into us. We ask that you would indwell the speaker with your Holy Spirit and the hearer as well, and to change us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. In 1939, Alfred Hitchcock made the movie Jamaica Inn. It was uh, based on the book by Daphne du Maurier by the same name. And so they make this, uh, this story about, by the way, it was one of three movies that Alfred Hitchcock made by Daphne du Maurier's um, writings, the other being Rebecca and the Birds. Anyway, it was the last movie Alfred Hitchcock made in England before he came to the United States. It's a period piece. It's set in Cornwall on the east coast, west coast of England in 1820, and it's filmed in the Jamaica Inn, the real Jamaica Inn as part of the film. So the story goes along that there's this place to live, you know, a, a pub, a, a hostel called the Jamaica Inn, but unknown to everyone else, there's this clandestine headquarters of these shipwreckers that are led by the, uh, the innkeeper, Joss Merlin. And what they do is they extinguish the lights on the rocky Cornish coast, and they engineer shipwrecks. So the ships will crash on the rocks there, and then they kill any of the surviving sailors and plunder the goods. So that's the whole story behind Jamaica Inn. Now, you probably didn't know this, but my wife has a nefarious family history as well. Her, her maiden name was Sands, and in 1640, Captain James Sands helped settle Block Island, Rhode Island. So not very long after that, in the early 1700s, the islanders on Block Island had a bit of a pirate streak. They also would extinguish the coastal um, warning signs and then cause the ships to get wrecked on the shoals there, then they would plunder the wealth. There's a particularly famous account in Block Island of the wreck of the Princess Augusta on Block Island in 1738. So the Princess Augusta was a 200-ton sailing ship that left from Rotterdam with a boatload of Germans. Um, there were uh, 240 of them, German immigrants, and they came from the Palatinate region of Germany, so they were called the Palatines. And so there's, there's a history about the wreck of the Palatine ship, but really that's just the people who were on this ship. So it's headed for Philadelphia. The Block Islanders um, put out false signal lights. The ship runs aground. They plunder the ship. They kill all the passengers. And to this day, da, 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 the rumor has it, you can still see the Palatine light because as they wanted to get rid of the evidence, they set the ship on fire. And so people still claim to be able to see the light of the ghost ship, the Palatine ship, still burning. All right, well, a little closer to home. <laughs> Another famous family is from Rich Nordberg's family. So 
September 21, 1868, 26 Clallam Indians, Rich's great uncle and some others, um, they were aware that there were some Canadian Indians, the Chimchian Indians, that were camped out on the Dungeness Spit. They had come all the way down from Prince Rupert and they'd gone to Puyallup to pick hops. They were on their way back, camped out on the Dungeness Spit, and they were waiting for the fog to lift so that they could row across the strait. And it was at that time that the Sklalams sneaked up on them and massacred 17 of the 18 Chimchi Indians. And one of them, a pregnant lady, was stabbed and clubbed, and they thought that they had done her in. So they stopped paying attention to her while they pillaged the rest of the camp. She crawled away to the existing lighthouse on the end of Dungeness Spit, where the lighthouse keeper let her in. The Sklalams chased her to the lighthouse, and they couldn't get in, and they couldn't burn the place down, so she survived. So we got that going for us. <laughs> now, as horrific as all that sounds, it really wasn't all that uncommon in the ancient world for shipwreck survivors to survive the shipwreck only to be killed by the natives or made into um, uh, slaves. Uh, this is kind of the potential that Paul is facing where he's on a ship with 276 people and they have survived two weeks of being on a sinking ship in the storm in the middle of the Mediterranean only to be shipwrecked at least a mile from the coast. Some of them swam to the coast. Some of them took parts of the of the ship, the, the ship that was breaking up, and they made it to, to shore. And so now, they, now they're assembled on the shore. They're all still alive, but dun, 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 for how long? What are they going to find when they come to shore? So let's pick up our story today in Acts 28.1. Now, Paul has been wanting to come to Rome for a very long time. Yeah, he recognized if the gospel was going to be a recognized religion, sooner or later it had to get to the world capital of Rome. And so it's, you remember as we looked at Paul's procedure of church planting, he likes to go to major metropolitan cities and plant churches there because they will then have an influence in the outlying communities. And so he's followed that pattern in establishing churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica in Corinth and Athens, and so the, he realizes that the jewel of all the cities is going to be Rome, and so he has this mindset. Um, he told us in Acts 19.21, when, when, uh, when he's there in Ephesus, he says, I, I, I want to see Rome, I intend to see Rome. And then again in uh, Acts 23.11, the Lord comes beside him to remind him that he's been a faithful servant, he's proclaimed the, the gospel in Jerusalem, but he was also proclaim it in Rome, also testify in Rome. More recently, while he's been on the sinking freighter, um, an angel came alongside him to comfort him and assure him that he must still stand a trial before Caesar. So that he knows this is not just his desire, but this is the Lord's desire that he ultimately go to Rome. And now, in the chapter before us, this long-awaited event finally happens. He, he finally makes it to Rome. So that's been the direction that Acts has been moving towards from, from the very beginning. And we, we saw the focus and the outline of the book of Acts in the Great Commission where Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so that's the outline that Luke has been following as he's been writing the book of Acts. And all of this is headed towards being his witness to the ends of the earth. Rome is the conclusion, the, the aim of the book of Acts. Now, when we look back at where we've been in the book of Acts, we find that the first 
seven chapters have been focused mainly on the witness in Jerusalem, and it was a very wonderful, powerful witness. We saw miracles being done, we saw the gospel being proclaimed, we saw the church being established, the deacons being chosen. Um, those are very formative days in the infant church, and we asked the question, what does the Spirit-filled church look like? And so when we look at those first seven chapters, we say the Spirit-filled church is, has boldness in its declaring the gospel. The Spirit-filled church cares for one another. The Spirit-filled church has fellowship together in the church, the gathering, the ecclesia. Then we go to Acts 8 through 12, and we're chronicling the, the, uh, the gospel going out to the regions of Judea and Samaria, again, following Jesus' pattern. And we saw that the Christians were persecuted and scattered after the um, uh, martyrdom of, of Stephen. So the, the Christians scattered away from the persecution into safer areas. And again, we ask, what does the Spirit-filled church look like? Well, it looks like patience in persecution. It looks like faithful witness in the middle of hardship. It looks like suffering well. Then in the beginning in Acts 13, we have this missionary expansion to the rest of the world. And we have Paul and Barnabas beginning to travel. They take their missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor and then into Europe. And they establish churches, like I said, in Thessalonica, Corinth, uh, Philippi, and Ephesus. But now we're, we're coming to the, the, the final step when Paul finally gets to carry his witness to Rome. And he's fulfilling what Jesus said when he says, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And again, we ask, then what does the Spirit-filled church look like? Well, in this time, it looks like a concern for the lost. It looks like faithful outreach and evangelism. It looks like stalwart witness in a hostile world. So we're on the final stretch now in the book of Acts. Luke has been describing Paul's trip to Rome um, he's been on a sinking ship driven before a storm for two weeks, and when all hope is lost of survival, the Lord assures him they will all survive, the ship will be lost, and in fact, that's exactly what happens. The ship is being destroyed on a reef, but every one of the passengers makes it safely to shore, and that, now we bring up the story in Acts 28, verse 1. Now, please follow along with me. <clears throat> After we were brought safely through... We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hands. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped the sea, justice will not allow him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no, mis no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So they've made it safely through the shipwreck. They've made it safely through the storm. The freighter that they're on is being destroyed by the, the waves. They're huddled on the beach, wet and exhausted. And it's then that they find out where they've landed. They've landed on the island of Malta. Uh, the crew had probably been to Malta before, but not ever this part of Malta. They had certainly been to the main harbor of Valletta on Malta, but this part is not anywhere close to that. M Malta 
is about uh, 58 miles south of Sicily, and it's an elongated island about 15, 16 miles long and about seven or eight miles wide. But the end that they land on, it's near St. Thomas Bay, is only about four or five miles wide. So this is a small target out in the middle of the ocean that, that, that they landed on. And they're, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're initially not sure where, where they've landed, but uh, it would not be long before they find out, maybe from the people that live there, that the place that they called was Malta. Uh, Malta is not Greek, nor is it Latin. The people settled in Malta are Phoenicians, and the word Malta is from the Phoenician word meaning a, a safe refuge, a place of refuge. Um, they didn't speak Greek or Latin primarily. They spoke a, a dialect of the Phoenician language. Now, Luke uses some interesting terms here. He says the Maltese people are natives. He uses the word barbaroi. We get the word barbarian from that. But he in no way is using it as a derogatory term when he calls them barbaroi. He's not saying that they're crude and, and uh, uncultured people. He's just saying that they don't speak Greek or Latin. So that anyone who doesn't speak Greek or Latin is a barbaroi. So he refers to them as, as natives. And we see by their reaction to these unexpected visitors that they are anything they're, they're far from being uncivilized. In fact, um, they exercise extraordinary kindness, um, well beyond what would be expected when they find these people shipwrecked. They, they didn't murder them. They didn't enslave them. Uh, like I said, it was often happened in the ancient world. But instead, we we're told because it was cold and raining, they kindled a fire and they received them. So the, the, the passengers are, are soaked from their swim to shore. Remember, this is mid-November, and they're in the middle of this storm. They've just had to swim to shore, but they receive you know, quite a different reaction being shipwrecked on this island than those that were shipwrecked on the Jamaica Inn story or on Block Island or on the Dungeness Spit in, in 1868. So some people would say they, they scoff at, the, at this uh, story because they say, well, how did they start a fire? There's no trees on Malta. Well. First of all, it's a really stupid thing to say because one, just because there are no trees doesn't mean there were no trees. Uh, secondly, um, they're on the windward side of the island in the middle of the ocean and anybody who knows the windward side of any ocean knows that the place is always going to be full of driftwood. Uh, third, there's been a big wooden ship that just crashed and many of them got to shore on planks and there's going to be planks and wood debris that's coming from this huge ship big enough to carry 276 passengers and their cargo of wheat. Uh, what else? Well, it doesn't say Paul was gathering up cordwood. It said he was gathering up sticks. There's certainly going to be brush all around the place that he could pick it up. And so uh, there's, there's brush everywhere. So I'm just assuming he's picking up brushwood. Now, Paul is a, pr a practical man. He's been very helpful on the boat, and now he's being helpful on land. They've got a wood fire. If you've ever had a fire outside, you know it uses a lot of fuel. And if you have a bonfire to keep a lot of people warm, it takes a lot of wood to keep the fire going. And so Paul's helping. He's gathering up some, some brushwood. And he, in the pile of brushwood that he picks up and gathers, he picks up a snake with it. Uh, 
You might say, well, how likely is that? Ah, good question. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, when he was writing his journals, he writes about a very similar thing. He says, when the fire grew hot, a long black snake wound slowly out into our group. We must have gathered it torpid with the twigs. So the snake, being a cold-breathed creature, would have been gathered up. The person bundling up the wood just assumed that the snake that he saw was firewood, but in actuality, it were a snake. And so we'd say, well, what kind of a snake was that? Well, the Greek word here that's used for snake means viper, but the skeptic will point out today that there are no vipers on Malta. And let me remind you, just because there are no vipers on Malta today doesn't mean there weren't vipers on Malta back then. Um, there have been some natural changes. Malta was largely uninhabited. Uh, at that time, it is densely populated today. Um, also, uh, there actually are snakes on Malta today. There are four kinds of snakes. None of them are indigenous to Malta. There's the cat snake, the rat snake, the whip snake, and the leopard snake. And one of them is actually poisonous, and that's the cat snake. They, none of those snakes were there during Paul's time. They were brought in probably from Algeria in northern um, Africa and brought in on some cargo or uh, logs. So there, there are actually snakes on Malta today, but not vipers. And so I'm just assuming this viper probably also hitched a ride and was not native to Malta. It's not really all that different from, you know, Ireland. The, the, there used to be snakes on Ireland. There are not now snakes on Ireland. The Catholics say that that's because um, St. Patrick drove them off of Ireland in the fourth century. There's a much earlier pagan version where this guy named Fionn Michael, he drove the snakes off of the island. Probably the snakes haven't been there for centuries, way before Fionn Michael, because the, the scientists tell us that it's just too cold in Ireland for snakes. It's just not a natural environment for them. But whatever, there were snakes, there's not snakes, and that's probably the case here too. Whatever reason, the Maltese people recognize this snake as a viper. They call it a viper. They see it bite Paul's hands, and they're, they're going to sit back and watch the show. So they, they draw the conclusion that Paul is a murderer. He's escaped divine justice. Notice in your Bible the word justice is capitalized. It's a capital J. It's a person, divine justice. Uh, justice also is referred to as the goddess Dike. Um, she's the daughter of Zeus and Themis. So they, they, they're watching him, and they think that divine justice, the goddess justice, is not going to let him get away with murder, and they're going to sit back and watch the show. And as they watch, you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. And so and they may have initially been disappointed, waiting for a good show. But they quickly come to the conclusion, and I think Luke is, meant, is meaning for this to be funny. They come to the conclusion that at once, he's a murderer. He's going to be judged by the goddess. And they quickly come to the conclusion, no, he's a god. He is divine himself, not the god, a god. And so they, they come to this conclusion. I think Luke is meaning this to be funny because he, it's not been that long since he reported to us that the people in Lystra initially thought Paul and his buddy Barnabas were gods. And then they concluded that they were jerks and they wanted to kill them. And they, and they quickly vacillate. You know, how do you go from being a god to being worthy of death, or the other way around, being worthy of death, and all of a sudden, now you're a god? So um, 
<coughs> they're they're uh, amused. Luke, Luke is amused, and they're surprised. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who had received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Uh, again, this is an interesting thing that kind of escapes our attention because the chief man is actually an official designation. That's his title. It's not just who he is. There's a title given to the chief man, and we have inscriptions to that effect that this is a designated um, leader on, on the island. And he has his estate somewhere near where the shipwreck takes place, and he uh, entertains his guests for three days. Again, it reminds me of the of this Jamaica Inn, where there's this lonely refuge on top of a stormy uh, cliff, and the sea below is raging. There's this warm hearth and abundant warm food, but outside is this dark and dreary cold, and the sea's lashing the coastline. The ship's breaking up. Kind of sounds like the introduction to uh, what was that? Dark Shadows. Remember that Dark Shadows? Ever watched that? Yeah. At any rate, Luke's, uh, Luke tells us that the chief, the chief leader of the island has a father who's sick with uh, dysentery. Now, uh, we've identified this since that time. It was known as Malta fever, sometimes identified as uh, Mediterranean fever. It's caused by the bacterium brucellosis and was uh, carried by the goats on Malta. And the symptoms would be that you'd get this infectious bacteria and you would have uh, you'd be miserable for several months and sometimes several years. This uh, bacteria was identified in 1887 by a guy named David Bruce, hence the name Bruce, uh, what did I just say, brucellosis. Brucellosis is the name of the bacteria. Um, they developed a vaccine from it, which was fairly effective unless you already had the fever, and then you would be miserable with it anyway. A curious side note here, the, U, the U.S. attempted to weaponize bruce, uh, brucellosis during World War II and finally came up with a working prototype in 1954, and they found that it was seldom fatal but always disabling, and the person who got it might wish he was dead. So they developed the Malta fever in these canisters, they were two-pound canisters that they would explode in the air and it would aerosolize this bacteria. They found that it was so highly contagious that anywhere between 10 and 100 bacteria would make you sick and you'd get, you would get this Malta fever. Now just as a, a reference point, you have about 380 trillion bacteria in or on you. So 10 to 100 is an exceedingly small amount that would, that would make you sick. At any rate, Paul goes over, then he prays for him. This is the only occasion that we have here um, of someone uh, outside of the book, of, uh, in the book of Acts or in the Old Testament or in rabbinic literature. This is the only occasion we have where somebody prays and lays hands on someone for healing. So Paul, here's Paul, the, the prisoner who is blessing other people. And when the word gets out that, uh, that people are being healed, more people come, and consequently, the, many of the islanders are also cured of their diseases. Verse 11, 
After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puccioli. Uh, there we found the brothers who had invited, who in, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Okay, so the party finally moves on to Rome. They'd spent three months on Malta. Remember, I told you before how the seas were closed, mare classum, during the months from November 11th until about mid-March. And so they had to wait that time out until navigation was allowed and safe, even though they're not that far now from Italy, their destination. Their shipwreck was in November, which meant, you count them up on your fingers too, that we are at the end of February at the soonest and probably the early part of March when they set sail again. They, they find another ship. Remember, the ship they were on was from Alexandria. I told you there was a trade route between Egypt, the breadbasket of Rome, and, and Italy. And so a lot of these ships, their home port was Alexandria. This ship, too, is from Alexandria, and they also are wintering on the island waiting for the seas to open again. And the soldiers in charge make space on that ship, and they're carried forward on their next part of their journey. Now, this freighter, we are told, is marked by the, the twin brothers as figureheads on, the on this ship. So the twin brothers are Castor and Pollux. They're the sons of Zeus and Leda. Zeus, of course, is the big god. He's the, the super god. Leda was, a, was a, the queen of Sparta. She's married to um, Tinandreus, and their children are said to be somehow connected to Zeus. Castor was reported to be an excellent horseman. Pollux was said to be a boxer. Um, their astral sign is the Gemini. You can see a lot of the statues of Castor and Pollux in Rome even, even today. Um, they, these two were especially popular in, in Egypt. Uh, Euripides said that they were, he saw them as guarding the truth and punishing the perjurers, which I think is interesting, which is why I'm mentioning it, is interesting because that's exactly what's happening here, is that Paul is the truth speaker, and he's, and he's on trial, but he's not, he's not a liar or a murderer. He, this kind of underscores Paul's innocence. Um, the, these two uh, gods are also seen by sailors as those who protect the seas and rid the seas of pirates and buccaneers. And so you have this interesting symbolism, uh, pagan symbolism, uh, about protection and about innocence and about the, you know, the covering, but really what's happening here is not in these pagan gods and goddesses. What's really happening here is that the one true God is delivering Paul to his destination just as he promised, because that's the underlying story here is that God's will will be done. Now, the sale is fairly uneventful. They, they, three days, they, they end up in Syracuse, which is on the east coast of Sicily. Here's my map of, of the Mediterranean again, and they have this big boot coming down, which is Italy, and the toe of the boot. It's only 1.9 miles from the toe of the boot of Italy to Sicily, and that's the Strait of Messina that goes through there. So they're close. They're on the east coast of Sicily at Syracuse, which at that time was the capital of 
the island. It had been in Roman hands since 212. There's a very famous whirlpool, actually, because, like I said, the straits funnel down to 1.9 miles, and there was a whirlpool that used to form on the northern part of that, and it was said to be strong enough to pull ships in stern first if you got caught into that whirlpool. Um, but they leave um, Syracuse, and it's, uh, they travel on to, to uh, Italy, to Regium, that's uh, uh, it's about 70 miles between Syracuse and Regium. They leave Regium and they find favorable winds and that takes them to Piccioli, which is modern-day Pozzuoli. It's uh, 200 miles north of Regium on the Bay of Naples. It's eight miles, it's on the other side of the Bay of Naples from Neapolis. And so now they're finished with their sea voyage. This is the home port of, the, of Egypt to Alexandria grain, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is where the grain gets unloaded in, in Italy. But we're still, we're still 130 miles away from Rome, but this is their, their main port for a grain import. It's a five-day walk now to Rome and by means of two well-traveled um, highways, the Companion Way and the Appian Way. The, this Appian Way, the way they're, they're going, leads into Rome along where the Circus Maximus would be. And this is the area where a lot of the Jews lived in Rome. This is the area where the Christian catacombs would uh, later be formed. It was an area then of light forest. Um, when the Romans hear, the Roman Christians hear that Paul is in the neighborhood, look, they, they travel out to meet him. And we're told they travel to the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet him. Now, the Forum of Appius on the Appian Way is about 43 miles from Rome. So the Roman Christians come out 43 miles, at least two days, maybe three days walk um, to, to meet Paul and form this entourage. Uh, the, the, the three taverns were about 21 miles south of Rome. And when Paul sees these Roman Christians, we are told that he's encouraged, that he's very grateful, um, that, that he's, he's jazzed up about this. So the trip from Malta has taken them three weeks. The, uh, the journey from Caesarea has been four months. But the point is that God's word has come to pass, and Paul comes to Rome. Now, there's something that's of no importance at all to this narrative, but it is interesting as far as where we are in our culture as American Christians who've been brought up in the shadow of dispensationalism, and that is that it teaches, dispensationalism teaches the concept of the secret rapture of the church, and that idea is that Christ comes, he descends from heaven to some point near but not on the earth, and then the church, both those living at the time and those that are dead, are caught up, raptured to meet him at this point above the earth. And then all of them, Jesus, the heavenly assembly, and the gathered church go back where they came from, where Christ came from, back to heaven, and they wait out the seven years of tribulation. Um, now, I grew up hearing that, and I grew up um, believing in this secret rapture and a little bit terrified about the whole prospect. And, of course, when I grew up, and there was a famous movie that it came out called The Thief in the Night in 1972. Now, I haven't seen it, but there's, there's the Left Behind series that's done by LaHaye and Jenkins, who were not theologians and don't use the Bible to come up with their conclusions, by the way. 
but that teaches that there's this secret rapture. I read about a couple who were so afraid that the rapture would happen that they don't lock their doors at night. They put a board up against the door in case they get raptured, their kids will be able to get out of the house. Now you'll notice in verse 15, the ESV properly renders the phrase here, um, to meet us. Literally, it means for a meeting with us. And that's the same phrase that is used in the famous 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which is famously and only once used in the Bible, which says that the saints are, are to meet the Lord in the air which, according to dispensational thinking, is this secret rapture, which then would immediately be followed by the Lord returning back to heaven for seven more years. But the use of this term in Acts 28, and in every place else in the Bible, totally discounts this interpretation. It contradicts this interpretation, because the term used here is a, is a term that's used for a, for a diplomatic practice. When a visiting dignitary were to come to the city, the elders, the leaders of the city, would come out of the city to some point and meet that dignitary, form an entourage, and then usher that dignitary back into the city. That's exactly what we see happening in this passage here before us, that the Roman Christians come out of the city, and they form this entourage with Paul, and they come back to the city with him. They don't go back to where Paul just came from. They come with Paul into the city. There's nothing here, nor in 1 Thessalonians, about turning around and going back. The rapture, as the New Testament bears witness, is simply part of an event that is part of the second coming, where Jesus comes and the church is gathered up, literally raptured. It takes, so somebody says, do you believe in the rapture? I say, yes, I believe in the rapture. The church is raptured. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and those of us who are still alive at that time will be gathered with him and meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. But from that point, we come with the Lord back to the earth. It's, we, um, that's the whole idea behind the rapture and the language in the text here. Let's be sure. I know you guys, if you've come to a different conclusion about that, make sure that your theology is based on Scripture and not on some fiction, and worse yet, some poorly done movie. Make sure, that, make sure that what you believe comes from God's Word. Now back to uh, Acts 28. Luke is not giving us the impression that Paul is the first one to bring the gospel to Rome. There are already Christians there when Paul gets there. In fact, he's been wondering what kind of a reception he's going to get. He doesn't, he doesn't know any of these. He didn't plant the church in Rome. And we are told that when these brothers come out, Paul is very jazzed about it. He's very encouraged. He's very enthusiastic when he meets these Christian brothers coming out to meet him. And Paul thanks God for this fresh encouragement. This has been um, three years since Paul first wrote to the Romans that he longed to come see them. Now, admittedly, it's very different uh, circumstances than he thought that he was going to have when he, when he came there. But nevertheless, he's now in Rome, and he's, he's so excited to have this heartwarming action of these other members of the Roman church who have tramped out so far, 43 miles, um, to meet him and to welcome him into their midst. Now, when Paul comes to Rome, it's already an ancient city. It's, Rome's 800 years old when Paul comes there. But just so that you can get a frame of reference here, when Paul gets here, the Colosseum doesn't even exist yet. It's not going to be built for another 
11 years. The Colosseum was built in 70 AD, and this is 59 AD. So there's no Colosseum. There are some big monuments there. There's the Temple of Jupiter. There's the, the palaces of Caesar. There's the Temple of Mars. Mars is the god of war. Of course, the Romans are big on Mars. But uh, it's, try to place yourself in it. He's not going to Rome to die in the Colosseum. It hasn't even been made yet. Rome has a population at this time of two million. That is huge by ancient standards, two million, half of which are slaves. So you have a, a, a million free people, a million slaves. Society is basically um, divided into three classes. There's a very small, rich uh, class, ruling class. There's a huge, poor class, and then there, there are slaves. Now, verse 16 tells us that Paul was allowed to stay by himself um, he's not in prison, he's not in jail, he's not uh, confined, he's, he's rented his own home, and he's, he's paying for his own way, Acts 28, verse 30, by his own, uh, he's paying it at his, own, at his own expense, but he's under constant supervision. There's always a Roman guard there with him. He's, he's, uh, he's chained by the wrist to a soldier. The soldier would be on rotation every four hours, and it raises an interesting question if Who's captive here? The, the Roman soldier who has to listen to Paul witness to him every day, or Paul who's a captive in his, his rented house? And Philippians 1.13 reminds us that because of his captivity, the gospel has gone out to uh, the palace guards. So there is a prisoner here, and they are completely a captive audience. But at any rate, at long last, Paul has arrived at his destination and he is there by the providence of God. What can we learn from this? Narcy Sproul says, all who are in Christ have a manifest destiny and God will bring each one to it. As Christians, we do not believe that our ultimate destiny rests in the hands of blind fate or of the furies or of arbitrary promiscuous deities. This is our Father's world, and we are His children. He has appointed for every one of us a final point, and He will bring us there. In the midst of storm, shipwreck, beatings, pain, when we start to lose courage and give up hope and think that the invisible hand of God has let us go, we need only to remember His servant Paul, who took courage when his feet landed safely on Roman soil. That is the God we worship, who has each one of His people in the hollow of His hand and he will not let us go. In the movie Jamaica Inn, as in real life, sometimes men are wicked, even murderous. They're thieves who often prey on the helpless, the disadvantaged. And people are not always good. People are capable of great atrocity, even murder. But God's children will be under God's care, and they will fulfill God's purposes. Let's pray, and I'll invite the choir if you'll come forward at this time. Our Father God, we want to thank you again for this opportunity we have to uh, not only hear your word presented, but also now to share in this fellowship meal, the communion. We ask you to bless these elements and bless these people. We ask you to take things which are common and impure and set them aside for a sacred and holy use. That They would be to the glory of your name and that we would be to the glory of your name. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.